0: If you picked up an outline before you came in, you'll notice that there are two passages of Scripture that we want to read at this time. The first one is from Malachi chapter 1, that is noted on your bulletin, and the second one is from Nehemiah chapter 13. We'll start with the passage from Malachi chapter one. And we'll read the first 10 verses. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master... Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And then turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm going to just start reading at verse 23. There's a whole litany of complaints that Nehemiah, who is the governor of Judah, makes against the people over whom he is governor. And I won't list all those, but I'll start at verse 23 and read to the end of the chapter. In those days also... I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel, Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Once again, let's go to God in prayer. Father, how we long to come into your presence this evening and to hear your word preached. Father, we pray that thou would truly be our vision. Father, that you would renew our minds, that you would take every thought that we have captive to Christ. Father, that we can live in a way that brings you glory and honor. Father, we pray that you would be with the messenger tonight, that the words that are spoken are your very words, that accompanied by the Spirit, that they would have an effect on our lives. And Father, that we would leave here willing and able to do the work that you have called us to. All this we pray in his name. Amen. There is a great deal in these passages that could occupy our time for quite some time. I'm not intending to preach what I would call an exegetical sermon, examining all the different parts of these passages and explaining them for you. I'm bringing this message because over the last couple of weeks, I have been bothered a good deal by conversations in our culture about the subjects of love and hate. Back on August 12, there was a riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the campus of the University of Virginia. The focal point of that riot was a statue of Robert E. Lee, the famous general from the Civil War on the Confederate side. There were some very nasty, nasty people who got involved in that riot. There were pro-Nazi people. There were white supremacists. There were what is now called Antifa, Black Lives Matter. There's a whole bunch of folks involved in that. I don't want to go into an analysis of that, but I simply want to call attention to all of the talk that generated from that riot. And so much of that talk on the media television, radio, newspapers, was about hatred. We may not have any more hatred in this country. Everybody has to love. And everybody has to love each other. Put up signs. Some people put up signs in their lawn. No hatred allowed here. What do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? To deal with this, I, I could go to the epistles of John. John 1 and John 2 are full of discussions about the love of God. You want to read about the love of God, what that means, how that's manifested, read through John's epistles. God is love, and love demands obedience, and love demands kindness toward our neighbor, and love kinds all of other things. I could also go to 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, all the attributes of love. But I want to try to focus on the meaning and what I call the contrast between love and hatred. And hopefully we can understand that from a biblical perspective and not be swayed by the liberal news media who wants to preach a certain kind of gospel at us, which I would submit is false. So I've chosen the passage from Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be looking at parts of that. But I've also read through parts of Nehemiah 13. And when you reflect on that passage from Nehemiah 13... You say, Nehemiah is a governor, and when he doesn't like something, he curses people, and he beats them up, and he pulls out their hair. According to most of the commentaries I've looked at, pulling out their hair was grabbing their beards, because the Jewish Levites and the Jewish priests always had beards, and they they wouldn't get anywhere with me. But with the priest, they could grab the beard and actually jerk some hair out. And you might ask yourself, is Nehemiah a godly man? Is Nehemiah serving here as one of God's agents? We could get into that and we could digress, but we won't go there either. I want to simply call attention to the linkage between the book of Malachi and the book of Nehemiah. When you look these two over, and you say, wow, they're a long ways apart. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is sandwiched there in between Ezra and Esther, and it obviously deals with a totally different part of Israel's history. No. Malachi, the name Malachi simply means the messenger. It's not a man's name. This is God's messenger sent to Israel during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. The time period is exactly the same. When Malachi talks there about bringing gifts to your governor, he's talking about Nehemiah. Malachi is a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. If you're taking notes and following the outline, that's that first space you want to fill in. Malachi is a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. Let me just give you a little bit of background there. After God had sent all of the Israelites into captivity in Babylon. He promised them that he would let them go back after 70 years. The exile was going to last 70 years. And after the 70 years were up, King Cyrus of Persia said, all right, anybody who wants to may go back to Jerusalem. And there were some 50,000 people in that first migration. Later on, King Artaxerxes Says, uh, <clears throat> Ezra is a very godly man. He is extremely well equipped as a theologian. We want to send Ezra back to Jerusalem to make certain that all of those Jews back there are worshiping God according to his law. That was the very explicit command that Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. Go back there, read to them the law of God make certain that they're following it to the T. Thirteen years later, the same king, Artaxerxes, sends Nehemiah and says, we've gotten reports that things are not well back there in Jerusalem, back in Judea. After all, the walls of the city are still down. It's been a hundred and 50 years since they were knocked down by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they still haven't been repaired. Nothing has been repaired. The temple has been rebuilt, not a terribly impressive one, but it's been. The altar is functioning again, but Jerusalem needs help. Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, trusted individual, was sent there to fix those problems. When you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize that these people who came back to Jerusalem and Judea were very quick to fall back into all kinds of sins. Ezra deals with that, especially when the Levites, the priests, married pagan women who had all kinds of idols. And Ezra says, wait a minute, you know, we have to deal with this. This is contrary to God's law. When Nehemiah comes, he runs into all kinds of other problems, and I won't go into that. I know some of you have studied the book of Nehemiah before. It's a very powerful, very worthwhile study. But one of the prophets that God sends to Jerusalem, to Judea, is Malachi. And when you read through Malachi, you will probably say, ouch, this is a prophet with a bite, this is a prophet with a sting, he doesn't make any bones about it, he calls sin, sin, and he enumerates it. So you have that kind of connection, Malachi is what I call a condemning He's not one who is there to encourage and to smooth things over. He's condemning the practices back there in Jerusalem with some very harsh language. Now, when you look at the opening of Malachi, you pick up what I call the opening issue. The one thing that Malachi is dealing with, first of all, is a complaint from the Israelites, back there in Jerusalem and Judea, that God doesn't love them anymore. God doesn't love us. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, when you go back to Ezra chapter 9, you will find there Ezra makes a statement in Ezra 9 verse 9. And I'll read it for you. Uh, We'll start there in verse 8. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. For a brief moment. To leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forgotten us in our slavery. Ezra is saying, here we are. We're all slaves. You go to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36, and you find Nehemiah saying almost exactly the same thing. I'll read that starting at verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and we are in great distress. You see what the Israelites are saying? God had promised us through Jeremiah and through other places that he would send us away in exile for 70 years. Then we could come back. But most of us didn't go back. Most of us kept living in Persia. And then some of us went from Persia back to Jerusalem, but we went there not as free citizens, but we went there as slaves. We had to pay taxes to Persia. We had to follow all of their laws, their rules. We were slaves under Persia. Conclusion? God doesn't love us anymore. How could we think? And then you put on top of that all of the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that pile up on the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And their complaint is, you don't love us, and you don't love Esau even though he is the twin brother of Jacob. You get two boys coming out of the same womb, the same father, the same mother, and now you're saying you love one and you hate the other? How can you do that, God? You obviously don't love us. Malachi's retort is very simple. Very specific. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hate. And when you read the rest of that chapter, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are also the objects of hate. And at that point, a lot of churches would explode and say, you can never attribute hatred to God. After all, God is love. I've heard that because this isn't the first time I dealt with this passage. I've heard people say, you're a heretic. You're ascribing hatred to God? Well, what does the text say? Some people take the text and twist it and say, oh, it doesn't really mean hatred. Uh, it must mean something else. Maybe he doesn't love them quite as much, but the text is very specific. You go back into the Hebrew, and that's exactly what the text is supposed to say. God loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. How do we understand that? How do we deal with that? When our culture says hatred is not permitted, hatred is not allowed, And don't any of you show hatred, because in a lot of places, that's contrary to the law. Many states and many cities have passed legislation saying that if you commit a crime and there is any hate speech connected with it, you go to prison for twice as long. You try to say that in Canada, you'll probably be put in prison. A lot of places, we will not tolerate any discussion about hatred, and yet the Bible is very explicit. One of the things we should always do when we get involved in this kind of discussion is go to a dictionary. What does a dictionary say? Well, the word love has so many different meanings today, some of which are perverted some of which are totally erroneous. But love generally means that you have very kindly affections towards someone or something. You feel kindly toward them. You are attracted to them. You want to be in good relationships with them. You want to demonstrate that love by various kinds of actions. We're kind of chirping today because we got a message this morning from one of our grandsons. He had just proposed to his sweetheart yesterday, gave her a diamond, and she said yes. Uh, Those two kids are so in love. Say, good. Love is grand. But now deal with hatred. You go to a dictionary, and what does a dictionary say about hatred? It says that you have unkind attitudes. You are not favorably inclined towards somebody, but you are negatively reacting to them. It doesn't equate hatred with murder. A lot of times in our society, hatred results in murder, and that's very sad, it's very tragic. But hatred is something that we as a culture have become so confused about. The Israelites were confused, they said, God hates us, no. When you look at God's actions, why did God send Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the other prophets? Why did He send them to Israel? to Jerusalem with strong messages. Sometimes those messages were pretty pointed. God did that because he loved them. Why did God send Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, pompous young king, to tear down the temple? To destroy the city, to destroy all the houses in Jerusalem. Why did God do that? Because he hated them? No, because he loved them. God demonstrated his love by showing an extreme, intensive kind of concern or care for them. He could have just said, Oh, I don't need you. I don't care for you anymore. I'll just let you go and do whatever you want. Go and marry with the Moabites. Go and marry with the Philistines. Go and do whatever you want. I don't care if you worship idols. I don't care if you sacrifice your children to Molech. God says, no. I care so much that I'm going to send my prophets to warn you, and then I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar to spank you, but good. And maybe you'll learn. Now think for a minute, parents, kids don't have to listen to this, but sometimes we spank our children, and our children say, you don't love me anymore. Yes, I do. I care so much about you, and you won't listen any other way. I have to spank your butt. I do that, because you don't love me. Yes, I do. That's what God is saying here about his people. I care so much about you, Israel. You are my chosen people. I have said over and over and over again, you are my people and I am your God. I love you. I care for you. If you want one synonym sort of encapsulate that idea of love. Put down care or concern. Hatred in one sense is the opposite of that. I don't care about you at all. I don't care what you do. That's expressing hatred. The writer of Hebrews makes that very plain in chapter 12. If you truly love your sons and your daughters, you will discipline them. You will hold them to account. And you won't let them just wander and do what they, what they might like to do. But we need to go beyond that. It's not only in Malachi chapter 1, but turn with me to some of the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, you're going to find that there are so many places where God expresses hatred for sinners. We'll start there with Psalm 2. Beginning at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. And then go with me also to Psalm 5. We'll pick it up there at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Pretty specific, pretty clear. Go with me to Psalm 11. We'll start there at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Then you come back and say, wait a minute. Something doesn't quite mesh here. What do we do with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. You don't want to underestimate that because the love of God is very real and it extends to all of his creation. One of the things that you need to recognize, and it comes through especially in the book of Revelation, that God is calling all of those people that he has created, he's calling them to repentance. And he's saying, I cannot tolerate sin. I am a holy God. I hate adultery. I hate idolatry. I hate abortion. I hate gambling. I hate, I hate, I hate all kinds of things that God hates because he is holy. What does God do to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is an enemy. Pharaoh has captured and put all of the Israelites in captivity for a long time. God comes there and continually repeats "Please, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you have to recognize that I am the Lord, I am the one that you should be worshiping. And to demonstrate that, God sends 10 plagues. Maybe this plague will convince you. Maybe that plague will convince you. Ten times over, God sends a plague with the expressed desire that the people of Egypt and Pharaoh himself would come to repentance. But they refuse. That is the natural inclination of those who are outside of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you will respond to those calls and you will say, God, I know you're holy. I am sorry. Please forgive me. If you're outside of Christ, if you are not one of his chosen people, your response will be, blank you, just defiant. Read through Revelation 19. All of the ways that God had brought his wrath to expression there and the refusal of the people to repent. And at that point, God says, All right, I'm done with you. What do we learn from this, the last part of the outline? If you hold to this notion that God is only love and hatred may not be associated with God, there's no need for a call to repentance. There's no need for it. If God is loving and loves everybody, then you don't need to repent because everybody's going to go to heaven. Everybody's in good shape. If you have that same commitment to exclusive love, there will not be any fear of god in our in our land and i see more and more of that today in our society there is literally no fear of god they don't care if they kill babies in the womb millions of them they're just a blob of tissue that's all they don't care about many things there's no fear of god if you don't recognize the wrath of God against sin. There is little or no need for evangelism. Why should you go to your neighbor and say, uh, "You know, I need to talk to you about your behavior. What you're doing is sinful. And they'll probably say, no, that's not sinful. Alcoholism isn't sinful, it's just a sickness. I'll go to the doctor and get that fixed. Gambling, that's not sinful. Going to the casino every other week, that's not sinful. That's just, that's sickness. Living a homosexual lifestyle, that's not sin. Don't call it sin. That's just an alternative lifestyle, and I happen to prefer that. Our society has lost the fear of God. Our churches, many of our churches have concentrated so exclusively on the love of God they cannot see that God is a righteous and holy God. You and I hopefully can. And one of the things I want to encourage and promote get involved in Bible studies. By yourself. At your dinner table. As families I hope that every family has one meal, at least one meal a day where all of you sit down together and you read a part of God's Holy Word and you talk about it. You discuss it. And then, of course, we have all kinds of Bible studies here. Pastor Bob is so good at that. Leads him. There are so many opportunities. Get involved. Know the Word of God backwards and forwards so that you can respond. Respond to all of the foolishness and all of the folly in our culture. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we really want to study your word, so that we love Bible studies, and we put that at the top of our calendars, We want to do it every day. We want to do it with our children. We want to have our children in schools where your word and your name is honored. We want to do it in our homes. And we pray, O Lord, that all of us might love your word and want to be here each week to hear it proclaimed, to hear it explained. We ask it in Christ, our Savior. Amen.